Hi everyone, welcome to the Do Healthy, Be Healthy podcast. Um, for today, I have my third and final round of student anonymous questions. So I teach a summer class on abnormal psychology, and I have my students submit anonymous questions. So this is the third round. They've had two rounds before this, and it just came due, I think, uh, Friday. So last week. So I'm getting around to trying to go through and answer all of these. Um, I did kind of preview them a little bit this time, um, and I kind of removed the ones, I'm not going to answer them again, that talk about like COVID and depression and anxiety um, and how the pandemic may be affecting those things. I talk a lot about that in the previous four episodes, and so I'm kind of skipping over those for this one. Uh, same with kind of genetics and heritability of certain mental health issues. Um, the, that was asked a few times again, and I think I covered that really well in the last two, so I don't want to go through those again. Um, but there's some interesting ones this time uh, that I really want to, well, they're all interesting, but there's a few that really stood out that we haven't talked really even close to yet um, that were, are going to be kind of challenging for me to answer, I think. I haven't thought through all of them yet. Um, so let's go ahead and get started. First question, is it possible to have anxiety attacks without having GAD? Uh, that being generalized anxiety disorder. My sister claims it is impossible. I feel as though I could just look this up, but I would love to hear it from a professor's perspective. Well, I hope you looked it up, but also, um, yes, it's perfectly possible. So uh, panic attacks are actually quite common. Um, I think in my lecture, I talk about this, that it's something like 60 some percent of humans have at least one anxiety attack in their life. It's really, it's your sympathetic nervous system, you know, the fight or flight response just going haywire. And that happens sometimes when we're really stressed physically, emotionally, uh, for whatever reason, we can have an anxiety attack or two. Um, panic attacks are not, you know, not something to worry about too much. Some, they're very scary. Sometimes they feel like a heart attack and, and people end up in the ER and then we have to kind of tease out like what happened, you know, from a mental and physical health perspective. Um, and it can be challenging and it can be scary. But if it is a panic attack and not a physical issue, it is not dangerous to your physical health. But it does cause a lot of avoidance and fear. We tend to avoid and be afraid of the things that um, surrounded us when we had a panic a attack or the things that we perceive caused it, even though you know the, the causes are not something that we can necessarily um, always control. So the best thing to do if you have an anxiety attack is to kind of move on with your life <laughs> and do your best to um, just kind of uh, get back to you know your normal uh, functioning after a day or two after it happens um, and if they start happening more frequently then that might be problematic but if it's just an isolated one that's that's not that different from most human experiences um, there's a little bit of a technicality here with this question because they ask you know, without, um, can you have anxiety attacks without having GAD? So panic disorder is a completely separate disorder, which involves having panic attacks to a frequency that they interfere with your life, um, that you have a lot of fear of having another panic attack, um, and that you start avoiding things, which, you know, um, hurts your life, which, you know, causes a lot of problems with your life. Um, you start avoiding things to try to avoid the panic attacks. Um, and then people tend to be pretty, you know, with become more and more withdrawn over time to try to control uh, the panic. So they, they become afraid of their own physiology, which they can't escape and they can't avoid because it's always there with them. Um, and so the treatment for this is actually really uh, excellent. It's an exposure treatment, you know, big surprise there, um, where we, you know, get people to experience their physiology in a safe place and help to form associations with it not being scary. So if someone's panic attacks really look like a lot of hyperventilation and shortness of breath, 
Um, I might have them do a series of exercises over several weeks to several months um, where they come into the office and they hyperventilate intentionally and they start to increase their tolerance to that um, scary sensation in my office, which is pretty chill. And there's an absence of, um, of uh, environmental scary things that they can try to control. So they get used to that physiology. Um, and after you know a little bit of time with these exercises, they start to be able to you know, re-engage in the things they've been avoiding. So if they had a panic attack when they went shopping, for instance, um, you know, with, with these physiological exercises, they can go and tolerate their increased physiology out when they're shopping till, you know, their body decides, well, there's really nothing to throw alarms off here when we go shopping. It's not scary. It's not dangerous. I don't need to be fight or flight about it. Um, so you kind of retrain the brain a little bit with these exercises and with some, with the exposure, physiological exposure exercises, uh, and then also exercises out in the community to get them used to being places. So it's certainly possible because generalized anxiety disorder is about worry and that worry is broad and not just about panic attacks. So someone can have panic attacks even without a diagnosis of any disorder. Um, so, and like I said, a lot of humans do 60 some percent. All right, next question. Does the transgender community typically get offended with their mindset going into the category of gender dysphoria? So gender dysphoria, um, it's hard for me to remember the exact criteria, but that's basically um, being dissatisfied with one's gender and that causing significant impairment and problems in someone's life. Um, you know, this is a pretty controversial diagnosis. I can't speak for the transgender community because I am not transgender myself. Um, so I'm, I'm, I, I can't, and, and it would be irresponsible of me to offer a blanket statement to say yes or no, they get offended about the gender dysphoria. Um, I would say personally, I think, um, you know, homosexuality used to be in a diagnosis in the DSM th two or three, I think, until they got rid of it, um, saying that it was, you know, um, disorder that needed to be diagnosed. And honestly, I think gender dysphoria ought to go the same way. Being dissatisfied with with one's gender, being transgendered, is is not a. Um, it, I wouldn't say it's common, but it's not. It's hard for me to consider it abnormal. It's just how some people are. Just like some people have a sexual interest in the opposite sex, some the same sex, and it's just because it's not common doesn't mean it's abnormal or negative. And I feel like gender dysphoria tries to. Um, be sensitive to the fact and acknowledge that people can be dissatisfied with their gender and want to and identify as a different gender than the one they look like or have been assigned or, or, or something like that. I think that this diagnosis is trying to be sensitive to that, but at the same time to put that in a book of mental health issues and diagnosis alongside some other issues it, it feels a little it feels like it's not accomplishing its purpose um, at the same time 
this diagnosis is often uh, necessary to um, or used to kind of justify uh, uh, hormonal therapy and, and, and gender reassignment surgeries and those kind of things. So it is used often in a way to that is kind of affirming um, because it leads to a treatment that an individual would want, but it's, it's kind of, it feels from a personal perspective, it feels a little wrong applying this diagnosis because a lot of the dysphoria and dissatisfaction and negative um, experiences and feelings that the transgender community experiences is not because of something wrong with them, but something wrong with society. They're being discriminated against. Um, they are not given the same kind of place within society that others are. I mean, for example, they, in many places, they, it, uh, being transgender is justification for firing someone or for, you know, they don't have the same protections as other minority communities. And, and so, you know, it's hard for me to give a diagnosis to someone um, and apply a diagnosis when what's causing the problem is, is, is the way that society is organized. It'd be like applying a diagnosis for someone being upset um, because they have been um, discriminated against uh, racially or, or <laughs> for some other reason. And it just, I know it's not an exact, you know, perfect um, analogy, uh, but I'm not a fan of the diagnosis, but I am a fan of acknowledging that uh, this is real and something that um, people might want to change about themselves. They might want to change their gender, identify as a just different gender, act differently. Um, and I think the problems come from our society not being very accepting of that and not being very accepting or understanding of anything outside of a male-female dichotomous um, gender identification. So I can't speak for the transgender community. I can tell you my feelings, and I just have. Um, would I give this diagnosis if someone, if I was for some reason asked to do an evaluation of, uh, if someone was to get, um, hormonal therapy or gender reassignment surgery or, or, or whatever, some kind of treatment. Um, if I needed to apply this diagnosis to make a legitimate, to make it legitimate, then I would use it. Um, any other situation I probably wouldn't. That's a great question. Clearly that's a little difficult one for me to answer and get the words around because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to use uh, words and phraseology that is going to be affirming to the transgender community, um, and I'm questioning myself as I go, which makes it a little hard to say. But um, I hope I got that right. <laughs> for any of you that may be um, trans or non-binary out there, you know, my apologies if I didn't quite use the correct wording, but I'm doing my best to be affirming. Um, I've identified in serious in previous podcasts. I'm definitely a cis straight white guy who is trying to be an ally to everyone and doing my best to do so. Um, so if I get it wrong, send me a message. Uh, I always want to learn how to do it better. Next question. I know this may be a bit far off the mark, but I was wondering if you could suggest ways to deal with and overcome imposter syndrome. I know I personally find myself frequently comparing what I've done to other people since I'm applying to medical school this cycle, and I can uh, take a really negative toll on my own mental health. Uh, if you have any suggestions on how to combat this during college and beyond, I would greatly appreciate it. Um, you know, I can't give personal advice to specific people, but I can speak broadly about um, what is called imposter syndrome. Now, this is not a diagnosis. This is not something that's like in the DSM or that we um, that that is um, 
an official diagnosis, but it is something that's talked about a lot. I mean, you know, especially anyone who's in an academic setting, be they a professor like myself um, or a student, you know, there's this idea that maybe we shouldn't be there, um, that other everyone else is better, and eventually they're going to find out. Um, I think this is a crisis of uh, availability of data. Um, so, and a an unnecessary focus in one area of our lives, which also kind of makes sense for where a college student is at. So let me, let me go back to that. So uh, a lack of availability of data, when I say that, I mean that we don't know everything that someone else is doing. And we may have this kind of tendency to assume that they are doing more or doing better than us. Now, if we're a high achieving person, especially someone seeking medical school and graduate or graduate school of any type and, and that sort of thing, and we're really focused on that, on that, think of how adaptive this has probably been across our life. I mean, if throughout our academic lives, we look around and think, man, I need to work harder because I need to make sure I'm doing as well as everybody else, at least. That causes us to achieve, right? So this is in some ways an adaptive belief. It doesn't make us feel good, but it serves a really good purpose in pushing us forward. Now, I think when we start to label it as imposter syndrome is when it starts to become problematic, when we start to neglect other areas of our lives, uh, when we start to um, work not because we enjoy it or because it's interesting, or but just because we're trying to compete with others. So then it, then it becomes problematic um, and all that self-doubt that comes up um, with it. So it's a lack of availability of data in that, you know, we don't know um, what all other people are doing. We don't know what grades they're getting in other classes. We don't know what they have going on in their life. We don't know. So if you, so being able to compare yourself to someone else, in my opinion, is kind of an illusion. We can't directly compare ourselves to someone else because humans are just too damn complicated to be able to say, I'm doing worse or better at life than that person. We can say an individual like, yes, I did better on a test than that person. I did worse on a test than that person. But unless you're sharing every single class with them, you know everything they're doing, you don't even know everything about them academically, let alone what's going on in the rest of their life. You may have certain struggles that slow you down or speed you up, uh, slow you down in certain places or some advantages that speed you up in certain places. Um, you don't have a way of comparing all those things with somebody else. Even if they're a very good friend, it's hard to know all, the, all of that information. Um, so I said two things. One was a, a lack of information. The other part is a, uh, uh, this idea that uh, in order to be successful, we have to focus all of our efforts into the area of success. And anything else is a distraction or something that's not good for us, that's not helpful in our lives. And that is a recipe for depression, anxiety, etc. Um, in order to lead a healthy life, mentally, we need to have investment in the things that matter to us. And if we only pick one thing to invest in, like school, that matters to us, then we're going to end up miserable. We may be very successful in school, but there are going to be times when things don't go as well in school. And then we don't have anything else that's boosting our mood, that's giving us meaning in, in life. Um, so even I'm not saying we have to split our time evenly because I certainly don't split my time evenly. I spend more, much more time working than I do doing anything else. Uh, but if I don't, um, 
engage in certain areas of my life, like my friends, my family, my recreation, my other kind of interesting pursuits. Um, I won't get into my hobbies, but I have hobbies. And if I didn't (laughs) engage in those and pursue those, then all I would be is work. And when that wasn't going well, or when it was interrupted, e.g. pandemic, um, it would ruin my mental health. I mean, it's been a blow to my kind of life satisfaction and happiness, certainly, like it has been to a lot of people. But it hasn't taken me down, and it hasn't taken a lot of people down because they have other areas of their life that are important and that they engage in. So I think imposter syndrome is about that. It's about not knowing it's about comparing ourselves to other people without really know without being able to make a good comparison and assuming that we're coming out on the negative side of that. And it's about neglecting to think about the other areas of our lives in which we are worthy and important and are worth investing our time in. So I think keeping those things in mind are important. I think boosting our mental health by engaging in some things to, you know, to the degree that we have time and the degree that we must make some time for outside of work, outside of school. And so I think reminding ourselves that are important um, and also focusing on our successes. And we can do that in various ways. You can you know, write down a journal of the things you did well. When you're really focused on something you did negatively, write down the things you did well. Um, it also gives you a chance to go do things that you do well. If you're not doing so well in, bio- in your biology class, maybe um, you know, once you've worked on that one, go work on your chemistry class that you're good at. Um, usually it's the opposite, I think, for most people, but whatever. Um, those kind of things can help you. Um, the key is not to wallow and sit still in this feeling of being an imposter. Um, it's to get up and do something, either um, physically or mentally, that might push you a little bit in the other direction. Knowing that the imposter syndrome will come back, it'll rear its ugly head, you'll have those thoughts, and that's just fine, that's normal. Um, but knowing how to deal with them and what to do when they come up um, is helpful. So seek your own strategies on that. I think I've given a few vague suggestions here. Um, if it's something that really drags you down, find someone to talk to, find a friend, find a therapist. Um, those are not the same thing, but depending on the degree of help you need, um, those are some options. Great question. Very self-relevant question. I think we all experience imposter syndrome. Next question. What's the easiest way to deal with someone with Alzheimer's? Um, not an expert here, uh, but, uh, some of the key things are not to, um, to be kind and friendly, to help people reminisce. Um, You know, Alzheimer's results in in memory loss, but there's a lot of memory that's retained. Uh, And so helping someone to experience um, those memories and talk about them can be be helpful to to boost their mood, Um, to not get mad or frustrated with them, um, to kind of say, okay, you know, you're, we're actually in the middle of doing this now. Let's go back and and do this. Um, You don't want to be kind of mean even if you're frustrated um it doesn't help to express it by saying something like dad come on we just talked about this well yeah you did but with someone with alzheimer's you can't you got to give them a little bit of leeway there <laughs> they're physically unable to um to uh keep those memories in their head so um i think the the easiest i don't know i don't know what the easiest way is but i think the best way is to you know reminisce with them spend time with them uh help them help them create structure in their environment, um, get them some uh, some home health care if they need it, or a nursing unit, depending on what stage of Alzheimer's and how, how much assistance they need. Help them find that and get that, or be that, uh, if you can. Um, but the the key from a per, from a helper perspective, the key is to remain 
um, calm and patient and to, if this is a family member, do things with them that you enjoy too. So reminiscing and hearing them tell, you know, old stories about, you know, their um, other relatives and, and when they were younger and things like that, they have a lot of access to those memories. And so um, doing that sort of thing uh, with them can be pleasant for you and pleasant for them and, and actually be, you know, helpful to their mental health. It's about it's the most I know about <laughs> um, working with folks with Alzheimer's. Most of my knowledge of that is purely academic. Next question. Do you think information about eating disorders is more helpful than harmful to stop the progression of more cases? Or do you think it puts ideas into the brains of those who are insecure? Um, well, I mean, frankly, I think we're all insecure about our physical bodies. I mean, that's kind of like most of the products that are sold uh, and services that are sold hinge on our discomfort with our bodies. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, in, in terms of insecure, I think most of us are insecure to a degree. Uh, maybe speaking to college students, that may be a different story, but, you know, wait a few years. Uh, <laughs> um, but I think that it's it's good for people to know that eating disorders are a thing and that they are a problem. Um, it's good for people to learn that early so they can identify it in themselves and in their friends and help them to get treatment because um, anorexia especially has a really high mortality rate. I mean, the malnutrition that results from uh, that extreme restriction of caloric intake um, has a really bad toll on the heart and an irreversible toll. So if someone spends a lot of time in their 20s um, in an anorexic state, you know, that's that their heart's going to peter out earlier in life than other people, even if they recover from the disease, they've done some damage to their heart. I mean, sometimes it's less, more or less severe, you know, it, it, there's variety there, but um, it's a dangerous uh, disorder. Um, and so I think it's important that that information get out there. I think the information this person may be referring to are some of the um, there are websites out there that are basically how-to guides about eating disorders, um, and they um, present themselves as pro-ana, like pro-anorexia, and things like that. And um, those are dangerous um, because those can kind of prey on people. They kind of normalize what is um, what is a, a health problem. I mean, it's one thing to you know monitor your diet and exercise and want to look good and work on your body and things like that. That that's one thing. But when we're talking to an extreme where unhealthy methods are used to do that and those unhealthy methods are discussed and supported and kind of venerated within these small groups that can be very dangerous so i think that but i think if more information gets out there of what is healthy what is not healthy um and that eating disorders exist and there are treatments for them and here's how that could work i think if more of that gets out there then less people will fall victim to those kind of um uh, groups that are using very unhealthy methods, those pro-anorexia groups that are using unhealthy methods to um, kind of create a physical appearance. Good question. I think that's true in general of most mental health issues. It's best to get that information out there and talk about it. And as much as I'm not a fan of celebrities in terms of um, most celebrities in terms of what they do to our, you know, mental health and opinions about themselves um, with their because their portrayals, and I, miss, I guess this isn't really their fault, but their portrayals of what is attractive and what is 
uh, especially physically, is very is within a very narrow range, um, and people don't tend to. S- it, it takes other experiences for people to see outside those ranges, but I love it when celebrities do come forth um, noting their mental or physical health issues and what they've done to overcome them. Um, I think that is very powerful and brave of them to come out with that because it normalizes it a bit. It says that, you know, even these people who you venerate and admire, they suffer from these issues too. And I love it when I see that they've actually done something um, about it that makes sense from a psychological science perspective. They've gotten some therapy, they've gotten maybe some medication if that's indicated, um, and and worked on themselves with a therapist uh, to to move forward. So. Next question. I know family members that are consistently hostile with the manner they speak, but immediately regret being so aggressive. Is there a condition and treatment to help them not respond this way so often? Um, I mean, I, you know, with just that, um, someone acting that way, that's just a tendency that they have that is probably unhealthy and not adaptive, but I wouldn't like, I wouldn't, I don't think nothing comes to mind as a condition associated with that. We do have some anger related diagnoses in the DSM, but just something like this is just a a maladaptive and unhealthy way of, of interacting with others. And clearly this person acknowledges it because they regret it whenever they're, you know, in the post-aggression period, they regret it, but that's their response, right? That's a response that they've learned across time, across their life, and so that response is kind of their natural reflex because it's worked for them in some way in the past. Um, and so there is treatment to help with that in talking with a therapist um, and helping them to give them skills to interrupt that cycle of you know getting hostile right away and then regretting it, to help them interrupt that cycle so they don't get hostile right away. They can find better ways of getting what they need and they can identify what they need that may be leading them to be hostile. And identify maybe they're overwhelmed and when someone comes with them saying hey can you do this i'm like no i can't do that leave me alone you know maybe they're stressed out and they're responding that way because they're overwhelmed and they're trying to get that person away from them like just leave me alone i can't talk about this right now i've got so much going on in my head but they don't recognize that that's the challenge they're having and they can't come up with a better way of doing it because well, that's really hard to do in the moment. And they've been doing it that way for most of their life. So it's hard to, you know, you can't expect people to just be a different person suddenly. Um, And so a therapist would help them talk through that, um, develop skills to help in those settings um, and then help them not respond that way as often. And this sounds like a person who would probably be responsive to that because they feel bad about it afterward. Next question. Under Other than the obvious medications one can take for bipolar disorder, do you have any other ideas or remedies that may be helpful with lessening the symptoms? Yes. Uh, so um, there is, I can't remember the name of this treatment. I think it's interpersonal social rhythm therapy or something like that. But it's basically keeping, since bipolar disorder can, uh, like manic episodes and even depressive episodes can be triggered by lack of sleep and, and some other things like that. Um, with bipolar disorder, the, the one thing therapists do with folks is help, try to help them get like a regular sleep schedule, regular living schedule, and kind of keep them, you know, um, on a little bit, um, not some rigid routine, but a, enough of a routine that it keeps them um, kind of mentally healthy. Um, also, you know, any, any other treatment for any other symptom can work. So we talked about anger just with the previous question. You know, if someone with bipolar disorder is experiencing that, that you know, insert that little bit into treatment. Um, if they're experiencing some kind of depression and lack of interest in life, you know, some, some values based, some kind of like, 
um, affirmation-based therapy where they've uh, identified the things that they like and then activate those areas of their life. We got, That's behavioral activation. That's kind of my um, area of expertise in a treatment for depression, but that could be helpful for someone with bipolar disorder. So, you know, once someone's stable on their medications with bipolar disorder, it's really a matter of looking at those other symptoms with the therapist and identifying skills and strategies to um, improve uh, those other areas. So, and that's going to vary based on, you know, any, a lot, a lot of different people with bipolar disorder are going to experience different symptoms once they're kind of well-regulated on medication. And so it's just whatever is indicated for the person. Good question. Next one. How do you think the stigma about mental health needs to be combated or what have you seen work best to address this problem? Um, I think, you know, just like any other kind of stigma and bias, sometimes it takes having someone in your life um, say that they have a mental health issue or that they've worked through one or they're in therapy or something like that to be more accepting and understanding of it. Um, once it starts to impact you either personally or in your social sphere, um, it can be, it, it can then become a destigmatizing event. We tend to think less because it's someone we know, we tend to think less of them as though they're lazy or they're, they've always had problems or they're not trying or, or whatever kind of stigma people have about, um, about mental health. Um, it helps us to have contact with people who might've experienced something and realize that, you know, they're just like anybody else and they've worked and they've worked through something. A lot of people just, um, continue to struggle with their problems instead of, um, working through them. So it's good that I think that helps to see other people around who have experienced mental health issues and see also see them kind of try to do what they can to work through them to realize that it's not just a thing that someone has that they're stuck with for the rest of their life, which it, in, in most cases it is not. Um, I also think that um, if mental health treatment was much more available and of on average, much more higher quality, that would help as well. Um, because more people who are experiencing mental health issues would seek treatment and get good treatment. Um, unfortunately, you know, there are many different groups that do mental health treatment. And um, even within those groups, not everyone uses a science and empirically based practice. Even within psychology, you see psychologists who are doing things that are very clearly against best practices um, and using and learning treatments that are not as good as other established treatments. And it's really kind of sad to see. Um, I recognize the stressors of being out as a psychologist in the real world, so to speak, outside of academia and seeing, you know, five to eight patients a day and really, you know, having to treat lots of different problems all the time. And that can be very stressful. So it's hard to do the best therapy for every single person. But I feel like that many people are trained that, you know, if you go and you listen and you try, then you're helping someone. And that is somewhat true. But if you also implement science-based practice along with just trying to help and being a good listener, then you do a lot better in terms of how much you can help, how many people you can help, what types of problems you can help, um, and all that sort of thing. Um, mental health treatment is also, it's, it's hard to find. There aren't a lot of there aren't enough therapists around per the number of people that need it. Uh, and I think that causes problems as well, because then we have more people who are struggling with mental health issues and don't have 
available treatment strategies. They can't get the help they need. And so they're, it looks like they're going to be that way forever. And so that reinforces stigma that, um, that people are just like have a mental health issue for the rest of their life. And if they can't get what they need in terms of treatment, then that might be true. And so better treatment, more treatment availability, um, I think would create kind of a, a, a backflow as more people got treatment, then more people would see people getting treatment and see that it's helpful. And then more people would seek it. Um, even for some of the problems we talked about today in this episode, where um, they're not meeting criteria for any mental health diagnosis, but clearly there's a problem there that someone could use some help with. So, that's my opinion. There are lots of opinions out there and lots of things that could be done to reduce mental health stigma, but that's what comes to mind for me as a as an active therapist. Next question. What type of internal stimuli, stimuli can intrude and produce sexual hardships? Um, I'm not sure what this person's uh, completely asking about. Uh, we did talk about um, sex disorders this last kind of unit. Um, and so, you know, typically when someone is uh, not happy with their sexual performance, the internal stimuli that intrude with that tend to be um, kind of a performance anxiety. They're, they're, they have had some problem with performance previously, and then in a new situation, they're worried about if that is gonna happen again. And that becomes catastrophic, right? There's nothing less sexy and romantic than thinking about how you may um, fail sexually, um, or may like not do well, or may, you know, physiologically may not respond with either erection or lubrication or whatever. Um, I mean, like that's really not sexy. Um, and so once it happens once we tend to have those thoughts and, and those can sometimes spin up in our brain and, you know, not having good sexual experience is just part of learning and part of growing with you, with your partner, or with the, you know, whomever you may be with. Um, and so, you know, those, those aren't necessarily gloom and doom, but they get stuck in our head and that can happen. Um, and that can produce, I, I think, sexual hardships like this person is asking about. And the way to get around that is actually to communicate openly uh, with our partners um, and to focus on the enjoyment in the moment as we go. And to know that, you know, lots of people have sex, not every sexual experience is perfect and wonderful. And if we let that get stuck in our head, um, then we might carry it with us into f a lot of future sexual experiences. And it becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where self-doubt leads to failure, leads to self-doubt, leads to failure. <laughs> um, and so, you know, if we're having, if anyone is having consistent problems, you know, there is sex therapy where a therapist can talk with a person and if they have a partner also with their partner um, and come up with, again, exercise. Everything's about exercises, right? Everything's about strategies and coping strategies um, and exercises to um, help them kind of both feel comfortable with sex. And a lot of that is communication. Some of it is actually physically what they do, but a lot of it is being able to communicate, um, especially their needs and desires with each other. Um, and those things can be helpful. I can't go, I can't tell you all about sex therapy. All that, that, that's a huge, you know, whole big thing to get into. Um, but I think those are the internal stimuli is usually self-doubt and performance anxiety that, that get into people's heads and, and cause problems with uh, sexual experiences. Um, and those are very treatable and something that is easy to overcome. Our bodies love sex. They enjoy it for the most, for most people, their bodies very much enjoy sex. And so once we can get around some of these, um, challenges, uh, it tends to be a self-reinforcing activity and something that is, um, can be experienced as pleasant very quickly once the kind of roadblocks are worked around. 
Next question. Why is it at any moment someone can go from being happy to a depressed state within a matter of minutes? Like someone that an individual witnesses triggers something within the brain to make them feel down, but what the person sees does not necessarily need to be one that is negative. Okay, so uh, what I'm hearing uh, is uh, what happens when someone is what we call emotionally labile, meaning that their emotions tend to change um, rather rapidly. You know, we, we tend to think of this as something like bipolar disorder, but that's not the case. Bipolar disorder um, involves people having, you know, periods of depression and periods of um, of an elevated mood, a manic mood, but that doesn't happen within minutes. It happens over days and weeks. Um, and so that, that change doesn't happen quickly within the same day. That's something different. And, you know, um, I, I don't want to speculate about what this kind of behavior could be um, in terms of a disorder, so that varies greatly from person to person. Um, but what I would wonder is, what is the reaction of the people around them when someone's kind of emotions change so quickly? If um, if that uh, gets them a lot of reassurance or attention, or it pushes people away when they want to be alone, that kind of thing, it, that may be more the purpose of it than anything else. Um, now, I, I've alluded to this in the past, but every pretty much everything that any human does um, has a purpose. It has a function. Now, the thing is that most humans are not aware of the function of their behavior, including myself, um, but it does serve a function. So, for example, if someone goes from very happy to very sad, um, that may get a lot of reassurance from people around them. You know, they may be like, oh, it's okay, what's wrong, you know, and and that kind of thing. And so if they need that, that might be their way of getting it. Now, this is not planful, and it's not manipulative. It's just throughout their life, they've learned to respond in this way to where they automatically do it, even if it may be a little odd or maybe put people off or it may not be the best way to respond. Any way we respond now, we've learned in the past. And so we can learn new ways of behaving. Um, once we recognize either through our own work or a therapist helping us um, what kind of uh, ways we tend to respond and how we might need to change that. So in this case, when you have this rapid happy to depressed and the, the stimulus in the environment doesn't seem to make sense, like why would that make them feel so bad? Um, it, there's probably another reason for it that just isn't um, very obvious, especially to the person experiencing it, but also to you as an observer. This person had a second question. I have a question about T PTSD. If something traumatic happened to someone as they are growing up and then they remove themselves from the situation by, let's say, going away to school in another state but still have nightmares about it, would you constitute that as a form of PTSD or a baseline of it? Now, when we talk about diagnosis, and especially with PTSD, it's not just one piece of it. So it's not just nightmares. It's not just a traumatic event. Um, you know, is the person? there are many other criteria that involve whether someone could be considered to have PTSD or not. I won't get into all those because, you know, you can look those up. Um, in this specific situation that this person is talking about, you know, I can't say specifically to this person, but in a situation like this, um, I would say that it's, you know, it's probably uh, PTSD adjacent, if anything else. It's one symptom of the constellation of symptoms um, that constitute PTSD. And so certainly that's something, if the nightmares are very bothersome for a person, uh, that can 
there, you know, some exposure-based treatments that are kind of similar to what we would do for PTSD may be helpful. If they're not that bothersome and they're not happening that often, then maybe they're just something that'll kind of fizzle away with time, um, especially since from what it sounds like in this example, the person just moved away for school um, and, um, and that sort of thing. So, I mean, certainly something that there could be help if the person needed it. I wouldn't say that just based on this information that it's PTSD, um, but it's, you know, a symptom of something that is kind of like the same process occurring, but it, to a much, 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 much milder form than full-blown PTSD if this is all that's happening. But again, if this if that bothers a person, we, there is a nightmare disorder treatment um, that works pretty well um, that therapists can learn how to do or if they don't already. Uh, that can help with nightmares specifically when there aren't a lot of other symptoms uh, associated with PTSD. Neat question. I like how these are getting very specific. <laughs> it makes it uh, both easier and more challenging <laughs> because um, you have to kind of dissect the situation um, uh, because if it's too broad of a question, it's hard to really have a foothold to answer it um, beyond just kind of giving you know, the data that we know in general from psychology, but with these specific ones, it's challenging, um, but fun and also a little bit easier in some ways because it can actually like speak to what, what the person asks about. Um, next one, why do eating disorders have such negative connotation associated with them compared to other mental illnesses? Um, I'm not sure that they, um, they do. I mean, you know, eating, there's a lot of stigma around eating and eating disorders, certainly. Um, I don't I don't know the data comparatively uh, uh, if there's like a higher prevalence of bias but certainly if this person's asking this question they perceive that or have read that somewhere and I think the reason that eating disorders have such a negative connotation is because we assume people could control it if they wanted to and this is the problem with stigma associated with most health issues in general be they mental physical etc um, that we assume that the person could control it if they wanted to and it's a matter of willpower um, and that is just completely false. Um, the idea of willpower, you know, there's some research on it and there's, it's labeled in the literature, but it, I honestly think that we should abandon this idea that people just need to exercise adequate willpower. There's not, it, that's just saying like, um, if you're sad, stop being sad, think happier. I mean, it's it, when someone is down, that's not something they can, it's not a switch because why would someone choose to suffer if they could just turn it off and not suffer. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, so, but I think maybe that's an easier assumption to make around eating disorders, um, depending on someone's personal experience that, you know, if, if, if they see someone with an eating disorder, they're like, just eat, what's the problem? It's food. Everyone loves food. How do you not like food? Just eat it. Um, that kind of attitude is, um, creates a lot of stigma around eating disorders. And you have to understand that these folks have been through experiences where they're trying to control something about their life. And a lot of times they're trying to control their body and their physicality. Um, and our bodies fight against that. Our bodies like to survive and live and they like to um, consume calories and store them for later. Now, we evolved at a time when food was not nearly as plentiful as it is now and not nearly as calorically dense as it is now. And so that is why we survived as a species, but it's not adaptive for us now wanting to eat more than we need. Um, and so um, we, so with regard to eating disorders, we look at that, we assume that, um, not we, but the biased biases occur because people assume that people could control it if they wanted to. And that's really not the case, not without help. Um, once someone 
um, has developed a pattern of disordered eating, it's pretty difficult to break. There's a lot of their body and brain that is really pushing to keep that there because their brain thinks it's a matter of survival. Um, even though it's quite the opposite, especially with anorexia, it's a matter of survival to eat more, not to eat less. But that's that's the way their body and brain have learned to see it um, and to see food. And it feels strange to people that um, like food and like to eat. Um, but for anorexia especially, it's, it can seem strange for someone to be like not into eating. Um, but it, it develops because that person has been trying to control it and their body and brain get to the point where they are afraid of the negative effects of eating so much more uh, than anything else. So again, it can be hard to understand and relate to. I'd really suggest watching some kind of in their own words videos and documentaries about people with eating disorders and they'll describe it to you and it's hard. It can be hard to understand when we haven't experienced what someone else has, but if we listen long enough and we kind of give up our preconceived notions, we can start to hear and feel a little piece of what they feel and start to understand it a little bit. We'll never understand it fully when we haven't gone through the experience, but we can understand it enough to get a handle on it and then to reduce some of our own personal biases if you're experiencing them or if you don't understand. Good question. If you have a family member with borderline personality disorder, how do you help them without overstepping? I feel like the smallest thing can trigger people that have this disorder, and I feel like it would be difficult if it was a family member. That's a great question. Um, sometimes, I mean, it depends on the person. Sometimes, yes, the smallest things can trigger people with borderline personality disorder. Um, they have such a strong fear of abandonment um, that they do a lot of, 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 they have a lot of behaviors that are meant to preserve the relationship with someone that paradoxically can sometimes damage the relationship. So it can be difficult if it's a family member. Um, there um, is an effective treatment for borderline personality disorder. And in this case, um, you know, you want a therapist that can do something called dialectical behavior therapy. If they're going to take a different approach, I would advise against seeking a different therapist. You want someone that can do dialectical behavior therapy to some degree. Now there's a perfect way to do DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, and there's like really, you know, ways that cut some corners because you need a lot of resources to do it perfectly and usually a devoted clinic that that supports a lot of treatment for that problem. So, you know, I, I'm not saying it has to be perfect, but you want someone that's using a treatment that is um, inspired by and, and focused around uh, dialectical behavior therapy. Um, I don't know the extent to which people have that experience in Greenville. I know in the past clinic, uh, we do have a DBT skills group, which there are a lot of skills that go into dialectical behavior therapy. There are a lot of other components too, but we have a skills group where people can come and learn the skills um, and things like that um, for patients who um, are experiencing borderline personality disorder. Um, so if the, if the person's getting treatment, I feel like if, it's fa- if, if you're working with a family member, the best thing you can do is help them to get treatment, help them stay in treatment because they're going to feel good about their therapist. They're going to feel bad about their therapist. They're going to go back and forth a little bit. So to encourage them to keep going um, and then to talk with them about what they're learning and how you can support them. So you can ask things like, you know, when you get mad at me, um, how do you want me to respond? What would be helpful from that you've learned from your therapist that to help respond? Do you want me to leave you alone? Do you want me to say, okay, how could you do How could you ask me that better? Do you want me, you know, what do you want? What, what do you need? Um, cause again, a lot of the, the behaviors that you see with borderline personality disorder that are problematic for the person with it and the people around them, um, are, you know, 
automatic reactions. They're just the person's just something happens, that's how they respond. It happens real fast. And so for them to learn to interrupt that cycle and create and use new skills and new ways of inter interacting with others that is great for the long-term benefit of that relationship, they need, you know, they need help with that. Uh, they need um, a therapist and good family members that will listen um, and help them to change the way that they interact. So that can be difficult, um, but it is, it is doable. Um, and um, having an open line of communication about it can be helpful. All right, just a handful more questions. So I'm going to keep this to one episode, even though it's a little bit longer, but just a handful more questions here. Uh, what have people? What gave people the impression that those living with schizophrenia were violent? Was there one specific case that just so happened to involve violence and people ran with it? Did someone report something of this nature and it made the news and people ran with it? Um, I don't know the specific instance. So what this person is referring to... Um, is that, you know, there's this assumption that people with schizophrenia are more violent and they're actually not. They have a less, um, they're less prone to violence there than your average person. Um, and not to say they're peaceful people or anything, but I say the probability of violence, um, within people with schizophrenia is lower than the probability of violence within a general population of people without schizophrenia. So I'm not saying that, you know, people with schizophrenia are, um, uh, peaceful people that are never violent because that's not the case, but less of them are violent than your average population, um, than someone from your average population. So, you know, there's a stereotype that people with schizophrenia are more violent. Um, and I think that's because people are afraid of, um, people with schizophrenia when they are kind of actively experiencing an active phase of the disorder, um, and their thoughts don't make sense and they might be erratic and it's hard to, their behavior looks unpredictable and in some ways it is. And so when we see unpredictable behavior, we get afraid of violence. Um, and I think that's more what it is, that we see people speaking loudly and yelling at things that aren't there and responding to voices that aren't there. That's one example. Um, and that's scary because we don't know what this person's going to do. They're not in touch with reality. What's going to happen to me? And so that's why I think people get afraid. So the extent to which those kind of videos and things have been out and people have seen that, um, it's kind of, um, it's, it's memorable to see those things. And so if it's memorable, it seems more prevalent than it actually is. And people think that, um, those folks are going to be violent because they see behavior that they perceive to be the precursors of violence, for example, yelling. Um, and that, that means that they are more violent. The best way I can answer that question. I don't know if there's a specific like thing that got into the news that everyone suddenly became afraid. I doubt there is. I bet it's more of a um, people have seen uh, uh, folks with schizophrenia and are because of what they see of their behavior, they're concerned that that could lead to violence. Next question. Oh man, this is a good question. Uh, legalizing marijuana has been a hot topic. I think for a couple of years now, probably more years than that. Um, what is your stance on it? Should we legalize it in all 50 states or not? Oh my God, this is such a good question. So I am still of two minds on this. Um, I have never used marijuana, so I don't know what it's like. Um, so I'm not clouded by that, by wanting to be able to use it legally or anything. I don't, I don't know if I would, if it was legal, I might try it just to see, but, um, you know, being a licensed psychologist and stuff, like I can't, if I, if I got arrested or something, I could lose my license. So I've never, and I've never been real interested in drugs anyway. So, um, so that's my reason for never trying it, but, oh crap. So the thing I think 
would be wonderful about legalizing marijuana is it would decriminalize it. We have a lot of people who are in prison based on three strikes laws and things like that, and it makes it very hard for those folks to reintegrate into society um, in a in a way that's helpful because it's hard to get a job, it's hard to get hired, and so you know people end up going back to illegal behavior to make money, which you know who wouldn't if you can't find employment, um, and so it's a bad situation. And so if we decriminalized marijuana, that would be better for lots of people because they would not be getting arrested for use um, and there wouldn't be these three strikes laws where people end up um, in prison for life for for example being caught with marijuana or some other drug a few times so um, I mean it would affect marijuana arrests not other drugs but you know what I mean um, so I like that the other side of it is from a public health and public safety um, so smoking is bad for you I'm a cardiovascular health psychologist. Like, smoking is bad for you. I don't want more people smoking and putting anything into their lungs. No matter what means of smoking, it is unhealthy. There's no healthy part of it. Um, I do not like that. That is, that is bad. I don't want more people smoking marijuana. Now, there are other ways to get the effects of, of marijuana. So, you know, I get that. And maybe if that were the preferred, like ingestion was the preferred method of using, then maybe that would be less of a problem. So that's a big problem there. My other problem from a public safety perspective is that um, marijuana impairs your ability to drive as much as alcohol does. But the thing is, if I have a drink, I can, I kind of know where my limit is, where my legal limit is at least. Um, and so I can, you know, if I'm still feeling a little buzzed, I know that I can't drive. I've either got to Uber or, you know, drink water for an hour or two and hang out and then leave home a little later, like leave for home a little later, like something like that. Like I can, I can regulate that personally a little bit. The impairment from marijuana persists after you are no longer um, high. And so I don't know the amount of time. There are experts that know more about this than I do. And there's no test for it. So we can't tell if people are driving impaired by using marijuana because there's no instantaneous test like there is with a breathalyzer or something like that. And maybe I'm a, a little delusional about my ability to know how well I can drive, but I know that I would, you know, there are um, breathalyzers at bars and stuff like that that you can test yourself on. And I know that I've always below the legal limit. Um, so, you know, <laughs> that's, that's a big problem, right? We need a test, uh, in my opinion, before we can really legalize. Um, the other part is that if we can keep marijuana out of the hands of adolescents, I think that's good because it does increase um, uh, probability of, of um, remember, it's an hallucinogen, and, and so it does increase the probability of developing schizophrenia in young people when, when it's a developing brain. So adolescents, until the age of like 22, 23, our prefrontal cortex is still developing, and so we really don't want it exposed to a lot of substances before that time. Um, and so we, I wouldn't want, you know, teenagers getting a hold of marijuana because it could be damaging their brains um, that are still developing in ways that could be irreparable and cause more mental and physical health issues later in their life. So a lot of regulation issues, a lot of problems there, but, you know, not insurmountable, except we don't have a test for driving while intoxicated. My final problem I have with it is that people already see marijuana as a healing herb, um, and it's not. They see it as a treatment for a lot of issues, um, and it's not. Um, there, it has been used um, to help with people with um, chronic pain, um, for people with, um, for example, are experiencing chemotherapy. So it has some medical uses, certainly. 
But my concern is that people would self-medicate, and since it's a drug, it would be something that they self-medicated on preferentially. So it'd be like, if alcohol was a treatment for anxiety, if people thought that, it's not. But if people thought that, it'd be like, man, I just need my shot in the middle of the day. And remember, alcohol and marijuana as well can be addictive. They Basically, if you use it, it makes you want to use it more because it gives good feelings. Not necessarily because it's chemically addictive like alcohol is or, or something like that. But if you use something that feels good, you want to use it more. Um, there are other factors to keep you from using it all the time, like you know having other things to do, not wanting to feel that way all the time. But again, like in general, if something feels good, we want to do it more. And so I would be very concerned that people would use a, a self-diagnosed medical reason as a reason to use marijuana, especially for anxiety. Um, you know, whether or not it's an adjunct treatment, like an accompanying treatment to therapy for anxiety is, is, hasn't really been tested. But my concern is people are like, I don't need therapy. I don't need help. I have marijuana. Um, and all that is, is avoidance. Like I have bad feelings. I smoke or I use marijuana in some way. Um, now I don't have those bad feelings. Well, those bad feelings are going to come right back. <laughs> you know, you're not really solving any problems. You're just like tamping down a little bit of biology here. Like, and you're also sitting down and relaxing and probably, and, you know, eating some delicious snacks and watching Netflix. Like that would make me feel good without marijuana. So like, you know, <laughs> the, the challenge there is I think people would use it as a replacement for therapy, um, which we know works and a replacement for other things that we know work. Um, and that would be my problem with it. So I'm sorry, my answer is kind of a non-answer because I am still on the fence. I think there are a lot of problems with legalization that people have not thought through. And from my unique perspective as a mental health professional, I'm really concerned about how it would be marketed, which no one controls how anything, how much of anything is marketed. You know, we still, you know, people can still say that herbs cure a bunch of crap that they don't, even if studies show that they don't do anything and vitamins and all this other kind of stuff. And so it would be advertised in a way as a treatment for um, something that it is not a treatment for. So those are my big concerns. Um, but I think that the I think that we're moving toward legalization. I think we're going to see that eventually. And I hope that um, states that adopt that a little bit later learn from the mistakes that states make who have adopted it earlier in terms of um, regulating it, keeping it out of the hands of adolescents and things like that. That was a great question. Thanks for that one. Next one. Uh, have there been any more studies on how the hippocampus functions or changes with people diagnosed with multiple personality disorders? So uh, multiple personality disorders is, is an old label. It's dissociative identity disorder now. Um, I'm not completely convinced that this disorder um, kind of exists outside of kind of very severe trauma experiences and kind of therapists looking for it and reinforcing um, the presence of multiple personalities. This is so tough to study because there's so few people who experience this um, these symptoms. Um, but I do believe that there's some brain scan research that shows that the brain scans look quite different when someone is um, uh, exhibiting one personality versus another. But, you know, the brain's also very different when we think very differently. But these people have this unique ability to switch their patterns of thinking so drastically that it, they present as a separate personality. And their brain does uh, the the way their brain functions does change um, and their physiology changes uh, as they do that. So I don't know specifically about the hippocampus. Uh, I would imagine that that goes along for the ride with that, um, especially because uh, people tend to report not having memories um, when they're um, in a state of one personality versus another. They don't have memories for each other. 
Um, so yeah, like the hippocampus is probably part of that. Um, I don't think the hippocampus physically changes, but probably the person's access to the memory stored there changes. And that's short-term storage anyway, more so. Next question. Uh, in your opinion, why do you think it's so difficult for young people to cope with mental illness? Why do you think they have such a hard time admitting that something is wrong? I don't know. I kind of feel the opposite. Um, you know, I, th I feel like this generation has been more attentive to their mental health. They talk more about it. They're less of a, you know, suck it up and get by type of generation. Um, and I think that's good and bad. I think it's good that folks are able to say, I'm struggling right now. I have this problem. But I also think there's a negative side of it in that we get into a culture of, I have anxiety, so I can't do this. I have depression, so I can't do this. And, and that's not the attitude that I um, want to be cultivated within a population because I want people to say, I have depression, I'm struggling with this, I'm working on it, I'm going to go see a therapist, I'm going to get some medication I'm, or, and or and get what I need. Uh, so that's kind of the thing I want. Um, so I feel like this generation is actually more likely to admit that they have mental health issues, um, more likely to identify them, and more likely, I don't know if they're more likely to seek help. I hope they're more likely to seek help for it. Um, they're definitely more likely to seek information about it. I don't know if the quality of that information is good, but they're likely to seek information about it. Um, so I don't think they have as hard a time um, admitting that something is wrong, but they might have a harder time coping um, or, well, I don't know if it's harder or not, but they may have some challenges coping because the way that people, um, they may observe other people coping with it is to restrict what they can do based on having a mental health issue as opposed to saying, I'm experiencing a mental health issue um, and I'm working through it while I still continue to work through the rest of my life as well. So, again, I don't have really great data to it. I'm talking a little more about my um, experiences and opinion on it but that's kind of where I'm at. Two more questions. Um, how do people know when to seek? I imagine there was more of a sentence there. How do people know when to seek problems for a mental issue? It's very simple. If you're experiencing distress, that lasts for a while, and you don't see how to get rid of it, ask for help. If you have trouble finding help, ask for help finding help. It's a lot of work. You'll get there. It may be a lot of work. Maybe easy. Maybe a lot of work. But you'll get there eventually. You'll get the help you need. Last question: If you are driving in a car and notice signs that the driver's anxiety is hindering their ability to drive safely, what should be done to ensure the safety of both you and the driver? Okay, that's a very specific question. Um, huh. I'm trying to imagine myself in that situation. It's hard for me to imagine um, noticing signs the driver's anxiety is hindering their ability. Um, because I wouldn't want to make assumptions about how they're feeling or what they're thinking or something like that. But if they tell me, you know, I'm so anxious right now, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this. Um, it would depend on like where I'm at and stuff like that and where we're driving. Um, but I would see, I would just, re, I would just acknowledge like, yeah, this is, there's traffic, like, for example, it's a high traffic. There's traffic everywhere. This is wild. You know what? Just take your time, stay in this lane, let people go around if you need to give it a few minutes, take some deep breaths. Um, and just kind of help walk them through it. I think that would be the best thing to do. The last thing you want to do is, is tell them, yeah, pull over. You're losing your shit. Pull over right now. That's not going to be helpful to them um, because we are kind of letting, we're helping them to let their anxiety drive the decision. And we don't want to do that. We don't want them to have this idea that they have, that there's this 
thing that is their anxiety that forces them to do things. That's not the case. In certain situations, we experience anxiety. Some people, there are a lot of situations where they experience anxiety. And if we help them to change their life, the way they think, the things they do, the skills they have in ways to improve, then there is no their anxiety. And there are many fewer situations in which they experience anxiety to the extent that they um, have trouble handling that situation. So I would be encouraging. I would ask them what they're feeling. I would ask them what they want to do um, and just try to help uh, coach them through it safely in that situation. Hmm, neat question. Oddly specific, but neat question. Um, so I want to thank everybody in my class, especially for submitting all these questions. You know, these are a lot of fun for me to go through and answer. Uh, in the era of the pandemic here, I'm not in a classroom to do it, and I usually teach online in the summer a lot anyway. Um, so this has been a really fun way to answer these questions and put them out as podcasts. Um, I hope that listeners have enjoyed it. Um, I hope the listeners that are my students have enjoyed it. And if you're one of my students and have more questions, feel free to send me something within the class. Um, if you're outside of the class, then feel free to go to dohealthybehealthy.com uh, and comment um, or send me a, a similarly anonymous question through the website. Thanks again and stay safe. <laughs>